Well, for those of you, I mean, I know we have a lot of visitors on a long weekend. And like uh, Ian said earlier, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. And I'm Steve. And my, my, my day job, I work with Athletes in Action. I'm the, the Sport Faith Chaplain for our Olympic Training Center in Calgary here in Canmore. Um, and so I'm preaching, and we're back to the book of John. And I'm, I'm an old school guy. You can see I'm old. I'm old school. I like Bibles. If you guys got a Bible, turn to John chapter 12. And if you want to borrow a Bible, we used to have a pile of them. Maybe we put them away for, co- for the, I don't know. But uh, if you got your Bible on your, your thing or whatever, whatever you use, we're going to do that. But let me ask you a question to get started. Um, years ago, I was at some gathering, and they had a mixer question. And the mixer question described a brush with fame that you've had. And so we kind of went around the room, and I, I thought about, well, I, you know, I was living in Minnesota at the time, and uh, I had a brush with fame. Uh, there's, we, we, I meet a lot of athletes, and so it was kind of easy for me. And, and, and I, I remember one of my brushes with fame. Actually, this would be a great question for us to share after the service. I would love to go through the room. What's been here? I'd like to hear your brush with fame. I think we will probably have some pretty exciting ones. But um, I was doing the chaplain for uh, uh, some Major League Baseball teams, the Minnesota Twins, we're playing the California Angels, so I got to do one in the locker room, and, and I'm a cross-country skier, so for me, I, sh- I, sh- I better be careful because Gary Anderson might be watching NFL players, uh, he's one of our, he goes to our church, he played in the NFL for a few years, like 20 some years, um, and Major League Baseball players, they don't buzz me that much, but cross-country skiers, Deb will tell you a story in the 2002 Olympics, I met a guy named Bjorn Dolly, and it's kind of embarrassing because she took a picture of me and Bjorn, and it, you know, you can ask her about the story, it's embarrassing. But anyway, so I'm at this Major League Baseball um, locker room. I'm in, the, and I'm in the Angels locker room, and these guys are coming in for chapel. And, and, and it wasn't bugging me that much, bothered me that much, but my boyhood hero, Rod Carew, came in. He was the hitting coach for the, uh, the Angels. And my heart just started fluttering, because <clears throat> Rod Carew used to win the batting t- championships all the, for several years, and, and he, he was a master base stealer. I remember listening on the radio, and he'd steal home plate. Only Rod Carew could steal home plate. You know, I was, I was cool. You know, I didn't act like a 12-year-old in the locker room like some, some chapel guys do. But um, I, wanted to, I wanted to invite him, and I should have, because I read his biography last year. Turns out the guy's a Christian. Um, but he was kind of quiet about his faith in, in a way, especially back then, and so I didn't say much. But, but have you ever been in, the, in, the, in a brush of greatness where your heart just beats a little bit? And, and your palms a little sweaty, and you kind of perk up to attention? And that's how it was with Rod Carew. And a few years later, Deb and I were at the bobsled track, and a friend of ours, Todd uh, Crawford, his brother's Mark Crawford, coached in the NHL for a while. Um, and and we, hey, hey, Todd, we heard Prince Albert of Monaco was here. And he goes, yeah, he's a friend of mine. Want to meet him? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> so we got to meet Prince Albert. I guess he's King Albert now. And uh, Deb walked away, and supposedly he was the most eligible bachelor in the world at that time. And she wasn't impressed, but it, but anyway, <laughs> those those are our uh, brushes with, with greatness. But um, how would it be to meet not just the king of a European nation or the or, or, or of our sports world, but the king of all kings, the creator of the universe? You know, okay, we're going to look at Jesus' triumphant entry today in, in, in John chapter twelve. What do you think the people felt like? Because they had heard about him, they heard the stories, they heard about the healings and the, and the miracles and the things that he was doing. I wonder if their hearts beat a little faster, like, oh, there he is. You know, it's much better than the prince of 
of, of, of Monica. Let, let me read it, starting in verse 12, chapter 12. On the next day, the great multitude had come to the feast. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And they began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is his, blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it, and as is written, um, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised, raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let me just pray real quick here. Lord, we come before you, and, and, and Father, you've given me the extraordinary privilege of, of just sharing your word. But Lord, you've given us all the extraordinary privilege of, of having your word, and most importantly, of having you. And Lord Jesus, we totally just want to glorify you this morning and, and honor you. And you're the greatest brush with fame we could ever have. And we will have it one day, face to face. We look forward to that day. And Lord, I pray that we could love you more this morning and esteem you higher and, and just see you for all your greatness. In your, in your name we do pray. Amen. Several years ago, uh, I had some buddies that were working with our athletes in action ministry, and they're over in Europe. And these guys are bike racers. And they found themselves in, in France, in, in Paris, the final day of the Tour de France. You guys watch the Tour de France? I mean, it's an amazing spectacle. Three weeks, these guys are going up and down the mountains and 200 kilometers a day, and there's uh, guys drop out, they crash, and, and the guys that remain, the group of riders is called the Peloton. And so these guys, were, my friends, are describing the scene. The Peloton is about to come to Paris, and they come in the, and they finish at the Arc de Triomphe, and they do a few laps, and the sprinters have it out. But they said there are mil like millions of people watching, just waiting for the Peloton to come. And... And then they're playing over the loudspeaker this incredibly annoying song over and over again. And if you're a fan of big hair heavy metal from the 80s and 90s, you'll probably know what song I'm thinking about. Anyone? <laughs> Not too many fans of big hair heavy metal here. Okay, it's the final countdown. Arnie, you've got to put another song in our heads before we leave today. But in many ways, this is Jesus' final countdown. We're only in chapter 12 of John, um, and, and there's 21 chapters in, in the book of John. But in, in chapter 12, Jesus begins his march to the cross. It's his final countdown. And what's co to come in the, in the next few weeks, we're going to be seeing and hearing of, of Jesus' teachings and the reality of, of, of what he did for us on the cross. And, and in this final week of his life, he knows what's coming, and he probably saves the best teaching for last. But anyway, as I read the passage there, you see that we are at the triumphant entry. And and my hope and desire for all of us and myself today is that we will truly see Jesus as the Hosanna and praiseworthy treasure that he tr totally is. And that one day, we, we, as I said in my prayer, we will worship him face to face. And, and the fickle crowd was calling out Hosanna, but as you all know, a week later, they're calling for his death. But we want to, I want us all to esteem him so highly as the king of kings that he truly is. So let me describe the setting a little bit, uh, this worship event. There are three main feasts in Jerusalem or, you know, the, for the Jews, the 
Passover, uh, Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. And this, this one, Passover, is, is probably the biggest and, and most important of them all. And, and every Jewish male was required to attend these feasts. And so Jesus, as a law-keeping uh, Jewish male, would have, would have kept all of these feasts. And, and they're full of prophetic significance. Many years ago, I was hosting, a, uh, I was directing a, 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 pro, a, a summer project for Athletes in Action, university athletes. And we, we did this thing. We brought in a, a, a born-again Jewish guy to do a, a, a Passover meal for us. It was really cool. It was called the Jewish Passover Seder. And so he led us to the Seder dinner. We hosted it at our home. And so we would cook lamb because they always have lamb. And there's all kinds of little things that were so significant. Well, first, well the lamb's the most important one. Because Jesus is the lamb of God. He was sacrificed for our sins. The Jewish people, they sacrifice a lamb. Um, and, and they partake of it at the Jewish Seder. But at one point, there's a, a piece of uh, unleavened bread that we broke off. And we put it in a napkin and we hid it. And that signifies the, the, the Messiah who's hidden and who will come. And then there's the, the, the egg as a kind of an appetizer, and that represented the destruction of the temple. But that points, again, of course, to Jesus because the temple was destroyed in AD 70, but it was the end of all the Jewish religious sacrifices because they didn't need him anymore. Because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. So as this guy went through all the different meal things of the Passover, you can see there's prophetic significance here and remembrance back from the Exodus. And it's just a really pretty interesting thing that we did. Um, so... But Israel, uh, Jerusalem is just bustling with people. So I didn't know this, but uh, I knew there were a lot of people in Jerusalem, but there were actually over 2 million people at that time. I mean, I'm thinking, that's so long ago. I didn't even know that many people in the world, hardly. But there are 2 million people in Jerusalem, and there would be hundreds of thousands more coming, pilgrims coming, to celebrate the Passover. You know, in AD 70, when the, the Romans sacked Jerusalem, Josephus historian said that about a million people were killed. I mean, that is a huge tragedy in the, in the, in the history of, of Israel. But here's this wonderful, bustling, booming city with over 2 million people, maybe 3 or million or more for the, for the, for the Passover feast. And what a, what a time that must have been. Historical records also say that because at the Passover time they're sacrificing these lambs, one historical record said that there were 257,000 lambs sacrificed one year for the Passover meal. That's a lot of lambs. And they, from the, from the temple, they had like this, this sewage system where the, the guts would kind of run down into the Kidron Valley. And it, it must have been a mess. You know, the Levites were the tribe that were responsible for the temple. And the Levites did the praise singing and the upkeep of the temple and the sacrifices. I tell you, if I was a Levite, I'd want to be in the band. I wouldn't want to be slit in the throat of a quarter of a million lambs. That'd be kind of gruesome. It's kind of nice that they don't have to do that anymore. But um, it must have been a huge operation. But when I study a passage, so here we are, we come to, to, to John chapter 12. I always ask a question to myself. What, is, what does the author want us to know? Um, ultimately, the author, of course, is the Holy Spirit working through John. Uh, John was also known as the elder. He was young of the, among the disciples, but he lived a long, long time. He's the only one of the disciples that didn't die a, a martyr's death. So John took on great esteem um, eventually as, as one of the disciples of Jesus. But the very end of the book of John, Sean has shared this before, where John said, all the things that Jesus said and did, I don't think all the books in the world would contain them. And so when John puts things in his gospel, it's there for a reason. So I'm always asking the question, why this, and what does he want us to know? 
Well, there's two things that I think he, he wants us to know. One is that Jesus is truly the phenomenon, and rightly so. And this is just a small taste of his fame that he deserves and he has. You know, Jesus went through so much of his ministry and life, you know, out in the, the wilderness and the small towns, and there wasn't a lot of time when he was like it. And this is the one time when he is it. And I think God really, his father designed it so this would happen. So people could see Jesus for who he really is, the, the esteemed, magnified son of God. And then secondly, I think, I think John wants us to see that Jesus fulfills so much of prophecy. There's so much of prophecy that is fulfilled. And, and there's no doubt that he truly is the saving Messiah, our saving Messiah. So well, let's dig in a little bit here. Um, so Jesus has accumulated this massive reputation by doing miracles for three years plus of ministry. He would have been talked about, discussed. Now think about that. It's not a big country, and you feed 5,000 people, word gets out. You raise a person from the dead, word really gets out. And here's a trivia question for, for you. We saw last week that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. We're going to see that. This is a key part of our text today. But there were a couple other people that Jesus raised from the dead, besides himself. Do you remember who they were? There was Jer- Jairus' daughter. She's a 12-year-old daughter. And in Luke, there's an instance where there's a funeral procession. Jesus has mercy on, on the mom and raises the son. You know, the celebration of life is over because we don't have a corpse anymore. we got a live person. So, so this isn't the first person that, that, that Jesus has raised. He's done it before, but Lazarus is, is, is the biggest one. His greatest miracle has taken place. So he would have been talked about. He would have been the phenomenon. Word got out in anticipation. As you see in verse 13, um, actually, no, verse 12. On the next day, the great multitude had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming. They also knew about Lazarus. And so uh, a little later, I got ahead of myself. In verse 17, and when the multitudes were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they were bearing him witness. So not only was the word getting out, but the people who were there uh, witnessing the, the raising of Lazarus, they were at the feast saying, yeah, I was there. I saw it. It was a big deal. And so many of Jesus' miracles, though, whether it was these other uh, resurrections or the feeding of the 5,000, he seemed like he, he kind of withdrew, didn't he? And he seemed to know whether it was his time to, to, to go forward or to take a step back. And when you look at Jesus' life, he just seemed to know the right move to make, didn't he? And because of that, I think that's just because he spent so much time with the Father. He cultivated a prayer life. And there are times when the disciples were like, okay, Jesus, you just fed 5,000 people. Things are really cooking. Let's strike while the iron's hot. And Jesus would spend the night in prayer and say, no, time to go to another town. And, and then kind of put the fuse out. But this time is different. It's like the father knows that this is the time where he wants his son to, to capitalize on this miracle and to make it, and to, and, and to kind of jack up his, his popularity. And Jesus just knew that it was the right time. And that's a great example for us to follow. We're doing an, an online Olympic chaplaincy right now. And um, we had a couple of guys come from the volleyball team a couple of days ago, from the Canadian volleyball team, Ryan and Lucas. And they're talking about how, how tough it was leaving their families at home and, and uh, the, one of them had a brand new baby born. The other one has two toddler kids. It's tough for him right now. Um, but then the one guy said, Ryan, he said, 
But you know what? In all of this, God is sovereign. This plan that he had, it's his sovereign plan. And, and we're just going to trust him and, and, and take our step by step as, as he leads us. And that's such a great example. And for me, I'm like, okay, we're supposed to be the chaplains ministering to you guys. But what you just said encouraged me so much. Because we're kind of locked out of the Olympic Village and, and can't do the chaplaincies. And, and even in our lives, there's so much that's changed. And yet we just need to realize that God is, God is sovereign. And just like Jesus, you know, he didn't anxiously look about him. He just looked upward to the Father. And he didn't let circumstances or people, the multitude, his disciples, determine wh- what steps he took. He just looked to the Father, and the Father said, okay, now, now is the right step to take. I think that, that's just such a, a great example for us. So, like I said, with the Father's direction, he's got maximum exposure here coming into Jerusalem. And there's, there's two key results. The first one is, that he gets received rightfully for who he is. But secondly, the timing of his crucifixion takes place exactly the right time. Think about this. I mean, the Sanhedrin, they don't like Jesus. They want to put him to death. And as Sean showed us last week, they even wanted to put Lazarus to death because of the the witness of his testimony of coming back to life. So many people were just like, whoa, this is something special going here. This is a special person. So the the religious leaders wanted to put not only Jesus to to death, but but Lazarus to death. And it would have been more expedient for them to do it in the desert, you know, um, or somewhere out there where they can't really prove who did it and maybe put him away quietly. But that's not what the Father wanted. He wanted the timing of the crucifixion to be when the multitudes were in Jerusalem, when he was at the height of his popularity, when uh, that would get the most, uh, just the most bang for it, whatever, for whatever reason. That's what the Father wanted. And so God engineered that for him to be there and for that to happen at that time. So, but let's look at some of the um, things that are going on. Um, Amidst all the hype and hosannas, there's a unique group of people in the city, and that's the the Greeks. Actually, it's just the non-Jewish people. Reading at verse 20 to 23, which we didn't read before, let me read that. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, and there therefore came... Um, they, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And he began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that's why I think, first of all, why the Father engineered this, the crucifixion to happen now, because now is the time for Jesus to be glorified. But the Greeks, Jesus was for everybody. I want to talk just a little bit about that um, because I think the non-Jewish people, they knew that Jesus was for them. Our passage goes on to say in chapter 12 how Jesus died for, for all the world and all the nations. And, you know, let me describe the temple a little bit. You've got the, the Holy of Holies where only the high priest can go in there once a year, only one time in his life. And they would tie a tie a string, a rope around his, his ankle in case he did something wrong and God struck him dead, they could drag him out. And, and then after the Holy of Holies, there's the inner courts. And that's where the, the Jewish people would come to worship. They do their sacrifices there um, and they do maybe worship singing and maybe look at the Torah and Torah studies, things like that. And then the outer courts, it's the only place where the non-Jewish people could go. I mean, the penalty, if a, if a non-Jewish person went into the inner courts, the penalty was death. They're pretty serious about it. And so they can only come to the outer courts. 
And so you remember Jesus' ministry on two different occasions, he cleared out the temple and he cleared out the outer courts. And so I think what's going on here is that the outer courts is the only place for a God-fearing, non-Jewish person to go to find God. But what's going on in the outer courts? I mean, all these Jewish people, they're buying and selling and trading 257,000 lambs or, or, or they're buying and selling and making it a marketplace. But that's the only place where the Gentiles could come to learn about God. And Jesus' heart is for, is for the world, it's for the nations, and he wants them to be able to come. And so he, that's why he cleared out the temple, I, I think. I think that's why he did that. So the, Jews, the, the, the non-Jews could hear and know him. And I think they saw that. And I think they knew that. And so they asked for a private audience with Jesus, which is kind of unusual, you know, non-Jewish people. And so they first of all came up to, to Philip, and he has to check it out with Andrew. And he, you sure it's okay? These guys talking to Jesus? And like, well, well, yeah. And, and then he tells him later in, in chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came for this hour. That's, I don't know if he's talking to specifically the disciples here, but probably in the context here, I think he's talking to um, the non-Jews. And then he also said later, he says in verse 32, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself, all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate what kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus knew. I mean, he just knew because here's the crowd. They're hailing him as their savior, their, 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 their king. And yet Jesus knows that by the end of the week, he's going to be lifted up on the cross. And when he says lifted up, I mean, everybody knew he was referring to crucifixion because the Romans had crucified, they'd murdered thousands of people um, there and they'd leave him hanging on the cross. So you, you know, you're walking down the street, you can't help but see this gruesome scene. I mean, it was ugly. It was, it was, it was bad. Um, so Jesus knew that his hour was coming, and it was the time for him to be glorified. But there are other, there's so many other um, prophecies about Jesus. But let me just say that Jesus knew. Revelation 13.8 says, uh, he described Jesus as being the land that was slain from before the foundation of the world before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew that was the plan. But then there are so many other prophecies too. In Zechariah 12.10, he says he will die being pierced. Isaiah 53 talks about the song, the servant song. The whole chapter talks about the servant, Jesus, who will be sacrificed for our sins. And then Psalm 22, Jesus quotes that on the cross, um, which describes the crucifixion written a thousand years before him. Pretty interesting. So remember I said that John wants to see the fulfilled prophecy that Jesus accomplishes? Well, in verse 13, um, some of that's going on there. They took branches, the palm trees, and went out and began to cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And John quotes directly from Psalm, um, Psalm 118, verse 25. And that would be very common for the people to, to do that. The word Hosanna means Savior, come save us. But they're looking for a political Savior, of course. But during the, the um, Passover, they would have a list of psalms called the Hallel. And the very last psalm they would read in the Hallel is Psalm 118, this psalm right here. So here they are for the Passover. They're used to saying in the psalm, and here they have the, the person they think is going to save them. And so they're singing out, Hosanna, Hosanna, come save this. And it's obvious to them, if this, if this guy could raise someone from the dead like Lazarus, then obviously he can do anything. So their hopes are very pinned on, on Jesus. And the palm leaves are, are interesting too. 
You know, um, let me just talk a little bit about that. Palm leaves aren't as prophetic, yet they indicate in many ways celebration. Um, in the Jewish history, they would use palm leaves to celebrate, uh, to signify victory, triumph, peace, and freedom. Uh, in 164 BC, when the Maccabees had a big victory over the oppressors, they would, history records, they waved the palm branches. And that's something that they did. When they, um, when they dedicated the new temple, they'd, they'd wave palm branches. So many, many years ago, when Dad was teaching Sunday school, I had a palm uh, plant in my home. And so she cut off a couple of them and, and brought them to Sunday school for the kids. And these are the palm trees. But you know, palm leaves aren't something that you just do um, uh, one Sunday a year on Palm Sunday. It's something that we're going to do for all eternity. And I'll get to that in just, in just a second here. But uh, in verses 14 to 16, when Jesus enters on a donkey, that's a direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which was written 500 years earlier. And Matthew and Luke also talk about that particular, um, that particular fulfillment of prophecy. And the interesting thing about that, too, is you see in that text there, it says that they didn't understand, in verse 16, that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy until later. And so much of prophecy is kind of like that because... Um, what did Jesus say? He said, when I go, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. We're going to see this in a couple of chapters, in, in chapter 14. And he will bring to you the understanding of all the things that I said and did. So here, the disciples are watching this and not realizing that he's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. But later, the Holy Spirit brings to their mind and their remembrance. And prophecy is kind of like that in a way. See, God doesn't want his word to be used as a, a future-telling book. But there's so many details of prophecy, but they're in symbolic language sometimes. And so after it happens, you look back, and just like our volleyball players, you can go, oh, yeah, God is totally in control. He knew what he's doing. Because look, he talked about it 500 years earlier in Zechariah, 1,000 years earlier in Psalm 118, and you put the pieces together, and you realize God really is in, in, in control there. So, but... I want to talk about, I just want to kind of bring my message to a close and talk about a couple of significant sevens. You know that seven is a significant number in the Bible? Um, there's, there's seven churches in, in Revelation delivered by seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven churches, seven torches, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, uh, seven thousand will be killed, seven mountains, seven kings. And seven is the number of completion. So they talk about God, like the seven lampstands, it's kind of saying like God is, is complete. And six is the number of man because it's, it's, it's incomplete. And so 666, of course, is, is the number of the Antichrist, the number of a man. One year I was doing a ski race and my friend got that bib number, 666, and he was a Christian. He was horrified. It's like, oh, look what number they gave me. I can have the worst race of my life. But I wanted to share with you a couple of really significant sevens. And like I said, if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Revelation 7. So I just said, waving the palm branches isn't something just for one Sunday a year. In Revelation 7, 10 to 12, it says this, After these things I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes, peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and Palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders 
and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, and power might belong to our God forever and ever. So what words in their hands that they're raving? Palm branches. So we're going to be doing that for all eternity. So I want to share another uh, significant seven. That's Revelation 7. You know, maybe you, here we are this weekend, we're right in the middle of the Olympics. And one of the most significant sevens happened when Fiji's seven rugby team defended their gold medal. Did you guys happen to watch that? We don't have a lot of rugby fans, maybe. I was working, I was doing a devotional for one of our uh, online devotions. I was up at midnight, and I needed to get to bed, but I watched it three times. It was so amazing. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Fiji. Fiji is this um, Pacific island, and in the 90s, God caused revival to happen. There was a U.S. ski team skier that um, I'd meet with her for a Christian gal. I'd meet with her, with her for discipleship and Bible study and prayer whenever she came up for the Lake Louise um, World Cup. And she was sponsored by Fiji Water. And so she got to meet the king because they flew her over uh, as their sponsor. And then she met the king. And he told stories. He said, in the 90s, God swept over the land and caused a great revival to happen. And part of that, he also blessed the, the land. And then the spring started springing up. And they bottled it, marketed it, made a lot of money. <laughs> but the Fiji guys, if you'd meet any of them on the, on the street, you'd be scared. They're Islander guys, big, massive, strong guys. And they got tattoos, you know. And, but they're all gentle giants. A few years ago, we had the Rugby uh, World Championships in Vancouver. And a friend I worked with was, was a chaplain. He got to meet them, spend time with them. He said, Steve, they're all Christians. Every single one of them are Christians. And so what happened in these Olympics... So in Rio, they won the gold medal. You know, this tiny little, these islands, it's like, it's amazing that they win the gold medal, but they're the defending Olympic gold medalist. And so, um, and so five months before the Olympics, with the pan- pandemic coming, they sequestered themselves. They lived in a garage, and some people donated a bunch of weights and these guys didn't see their families. One of the guys lost his father, didn't go to the funeral. Another one just had a baby boy, didn't get to see him the whole time. And they just trained together. They did Bible studies together every day. And, and before they play a match, they have a, a team hymn. They sing a team hymn. So I'm watching them. They're playing the New Zealand All Blacks. You know, that, that's, that's like the, the, the best rugby seven. And they beat them. And, and okay, so... So I watched, they all, they all get in a huddle, and they're worshiping. They're not just praying, they're worshiping God. And then, and then they're done, and a couple guys can't stop. <laughs> and so they're down like this. Because he can't stop. <laughs> and the, 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 the All Blacks are like, they're looking around, and the CBC reporters, they don't know what to say. <laughs> Finally, after a while, they, they shake hands. And I just thought, wow. That is so cool that they are worshiping like that. You know, every Christian rejoices when God is rightfully exalted, when he's rightfully worshiped, exalted, and praised. You know, and, and so we rejoice when we watch Jesus in his triumphant entry receive that. And we rejoice even today when we see the, the rugby seven Fiji team um, praised and, and their father. And then we read Revelation 7, it's going to be our future. And, and, and we get to do that. You know, um, sometimes maybe you struggle with that because you look around and you see someone next to you in church go, well, they really seem to be able to worship. And I'm not feeling it. You know, but let me read you a quote. John Piper 
is a guy that years ago, I came on full-time ministry like in 1985, and I read this book called Desiring God by John Piper. And I thought, if I ever move back to Minneapolis, I'm going to his church because he just seemed to know God and esteem him and honor him in a way that no one that I knew of in this present day. But this is what John Piper wrote. He says, I've discovered what better saints that I have found before me. The full enjoyment of God is my ultimate home, but I'm still far off and only on the way. Let me read that again. I've discovered what better saints than I have found before me. The full enjoyment of God is my ultimate home, but I am still far off and only on the way. You know, so we're all far off and on the way to fully enjoying God for who he really is. And, and let me just give you some practicals because I want us all to have that. I want my heart to be like that. And let me just throw out some things. You know, when you read your Bible, first of all, read your Bible. <laughs> Secondly, read it with the intent to love Jesus more. You know, don't just take off a box and say, you know what, as a result of, of reading my Bible today, I want to find out something about Jesus that makes me love him and honor him and esteem him more. And you can see the same thing about church or going to Bible study. I just, this, I, I really want to do this with the, that intent, to know Jesus better and to love him more. Secondly, carve out maybe some time during your day. It doesn't have to be a huge chunk, hours in the prayer clouds or nothing, just five minutes. I'm just going to take five minutes and just think about how awesome Jesus is. And just esteem him. Think about what, about what it would be like to have him ride by. If you were in the audience, the triumphant entry, and Jesus comes by on the donkey, you know, answering that, that, um, the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, where he comes in a colt, humbly. You know, the Ro a Roman general would come on a white stallion. Not Jesus. He was humble, and yet he came by you. Just like me and Rod Carew. Maybe you could touch him. Wouldn't that be, I mean, Jesus, to be that close, just to esteem him and love him, just think about what he's done for you. Take five minutes and enjoy your salvation. And then thirdly, maybe think up some, some intentional thing to do, like maybe go for a prayer walk. Or just, just go walk around and enjoy, because Jesus is the author and creator of, of everything we see. When there's no smoke, you can actually see it. Um, but just go out and maybe just say, I'm going to enjoy Jesus' creation. Just do some intentional exercises like that. Or maybe just um, pray. I sometimes do an acrostic through the alphabet. Jesus, you are awesome. Jesus, I praise you because you're the begotten Son of God. Jesus, I praise you because you're the creator. The, I mean, there's just exercises that you can do, little creative things, just to fall more in love with Jesus because we want to lift him high and esteem him and make him the center of our world and love him greatly and celebrate that salvation he gave to us. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just thank you so much for the salvation that you gave to us and the passage that we read and the verses afterwards that says when you go into the ground, when the wheat goes into the ground, it dies and, and it bears much fruit. And, and Lord, all of us in this room are, are part of that fruit. You have saved the world because of your sacrifice for us. So we want to place you high and, and worship you and honor you and love you and understand the awesome nature of who you are. And Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit just to enliven our hearts for that purpose and lead us into that place. We pray in your honored, glorious, awesome name. Amen.